You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 84. On this show, we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is Jace here alongside my co-host, Clark. Last week on the show, we had Glenn. Glenn has a net worth of $5.5 million and has a very fascinating story, going from maintenance man to multifamily syndicator. If you're new to the show or whether you've been listening for a while, we appreciate you tuning into the podcast. Our hope is to bring these stories to you and help all of us learn from how these millionaires have achieved success. A special thanks to our sponsor, Equity Multiple, for supporting today's episode. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally manage commercial real estate and create a stronger, more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. Tell them Clark and Jay sent you. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, please feel free to reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll jump on a call with you to discuss the opportunities and strategy. Also, we're always looking for new millionaires interviewees. If you're interested, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. On today's show, we have a special guest. We have Maria Bruno, who is head of U.S. Wealth Planning and Research at Vanguard. We talk about her story. We talk about Vanguard as a company, some of the strategies that they employ, and some of the research that she's involved with. She also tells us the most popular investment at Vanguard. So without further ado, let's get into the episode with Maria from U.S. Wealth Planning and Research at Vanguard. Maria, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of where you've come from, what you do for Vanguard now, and, and kind of what you're up to? Sure, yes, and thanks for having me here today. Uh, so as you mentioned, I lead a research team here at Vanguard that focuses on uh, wealth planning strategies. So um, we look at topics in terms of investing, retirement, personal taxation, a combination of those types of things to inform in terms of what Vanguard's views are on certain planning strategies and how investors can then implement those strategies. Kind of have had a, a, a bipolar career, I guess. I've been in the strategy research side for about 13 years now. And then prior to that, I was a financial planner. I was a practitioner. So for the first generally the first half of my career. So kind of a split role. I went to the dark side of research about a dozen years ago. Interesting. So let's let's dive in a little bit about what you do there. What are some of the trends that maybe you've seen over the last decade in terms of wealth planning and in terms of allocation and everything else? Yeah, it's interesting. I think when you know I started working with clients, a lot of the focus was around investment selection in terms of you know which funds to pick. Uh, whether they're indexed or active. But as we the industry evolves, I see the focus more towards, especially on the accumulation side, how do I invest my next marginal dollar across the household? Uh, and then for those shifting towards retirement and in retirement, focus more on is decision-making around the retirement time frame. But then also, 
how to spend tax efficiently in retirement. And if you think about it, you know, our predecessors retired with large defined benefit plans. What we're seeing now is this RMD generation of people leaving the workforce with large tax deferred balances, and they're having to deal with how to manage that. So I will say that more of the conversations we're having and, and more of the research that we're doing is across the household in terms of investing, income taxation, managing debt, as opposed to maybe portfolio-based drawdown strategy that may have been more focused in the past. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And we talked briefly before the show about how the mindset has shifted from, you know, what specific fund or mutual fund or index fund or ETF or whatever should I invest in versus allocating to, to maximize tax efficiency. How much do you think an investor or anybody should consider taxes in retirement? Obviously, when they start, right, they have the, the decision between Roth or traditional IRA, and that has tax impact. But how much should the average investor, if they're in their 30s or 40s, be making decisions based on what they feel could influence them tax-wise in retirement? Yeah, it's a good question because when you are earlier in your career, you don't know what your personal income tax rate would look like, let alone what the legislative landscape can look like down the road. That's really where tax diversification comes into play. So you want to be mindful of maximizing tax efficiency today in terms of, all right, well, do I invest in a, you know, a Roth account or a tax deferred account, for instance, um, versus a traditional, the deferred account and how to, to, to have that mindset Certainly, the immediate tax gratification of a tax-deferred contribution is compelling, but when you think about it in terms of the bigger picture, many younger investors are in a lower marginal rate today than they will be later uh, in retirement. So the value of that tax deduction today is far outweighed by the tax-free growth that you would get with a Roth, for instance. So it's really thinking about it contextually, um, but then also having the tax diversification across the different types of accounts. I agree with you that it's tough, right? Especially politically, you don't know where it's going to be and, and, and how all that's going to play out. So I agree with you, just something to think about. I think some of the trends we're seeing there are quite compelling. Um, when we look at some of the investing trends with planned participants, for, for instance, um, we are seeing an increase in Roth adoption, particularly strong with younger investors. Now, this is part of the, the benefits of plan design. Um, about two-thirds of plans, and these are plans that Vanguard does the record-keeping and investment management for. Um, so about what we're seeing is about two-thirds of plans offering Roth today, and maybe roughly roughly a quarter of, of young investors are using them today. And they're the largest demographic, actually, of individuals using Roth 401ks. So that's compelling. Um, if you couple that with a, a, a balanced fund or a, a target date fund, for instance, with perhaps an, an auto enrollment. So we're seeing plan sponsors take advantage of these auto enrollment features. So it's more of an opt-out as opposed to an opt-in. So with a pretty good contribution rate, uh, with a balanced, diversified investment product, it really creates a good um a good positioning point for young investors today. That's not the same story that would have been for our predecessors 20 years ago. Sure. And how are those, have you seen any trends in, in what is invested in each, in those retirement accounts? Is that obviously, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, right, you've had mutual and index funds and now, right, people are starting to unroll these zero fee index funds. What are, what are the trends of what people are primarily invested in and how has that changed over the last couple decades? And that's within their 401ks? 
Yeah, or or just generally, maybe just in traditional retirement accounts too. It's probably my guess would be shifted from more single stock investing to mutual and index funds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at how the um, plan offerings have changed over time and the mutual fund offerings as well, we're seeing much more uh, in terms of globally diversified single fund investment options that offer diversification at very low cost, typically through index products. So I think investors are really embracing that and understanding the importance of cost in their decision making. Because um, it would really be hard to replicate those types of investment solutions um, with individual funds. So the ability to aggregate that together allows um, you know, lower balance type investors to take advantage of that diversification. So very compelling there. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it within the 401k state space. We're also seeing it with retail investors in terms of how they direct their dollars uh, within their IRAs, for instance. You know, here at Vanguard, we talk about our investing principles. Cost is one of them. Uh, we can sum it up with four words, goal, balance, cost, and discipline. Cost, one of the things that you can control with investing. And when I talk about cost, I always reinforce that costs are investment fees, but they're also taxes. So those are the things that investors can be prudent in their decision-making in terms of how they build their portfolios. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a good point. Do you see any shift from... Are, are people moving more out of actively managed mutual funds to index funds, or do you still see those two being pretty split? Uh, we did see trends towards um, index funds, certainly, but low-cost active investing um, still can play a role. Uh, we see investors tending to allocate those as they should within their tax-advantaged accounts. These funds tend to have higher um, dividend payout and things like that, not as tax-efficient as index funds, so it's best to shelter those within tax-advantaged accounts. And we're seeing investors follow those trends as well. But by and large, um, you know, the index trends um, are still prevalent. Yeah. So let's just back up here and and maybe talk about, you know, for the person who's just getting started, where would you recommend they start if they said, hey, I want to, you know, start investing with Vanguard. Maybe they're just started their career. They don't have a 401k. They don't have an IRA. How do they start? And then maybe from that, we'll pivot kind of generationally what, what people should be doing. So when you think about somebody who, say, is just starting into the workplace, I mean, certainly if they have a 401k, particularly with an employer match, that is the first place where they should be allocating their money. You know, if not, you're leaving money on the table. So that's kind of the no-brainer. From there, um, I'm a pretty strong advocate for Roth IRAs for a couple of reasons. One, they certainly offer the tax-free growth. But the other thing is you can consider them almost an off-label investing account. I sometimes get frowned upon when I use that term or, or think about Roths in that context. But in essence, it's a multitasking type of account because you can always access your contribution, income tax, and penalty free. So when you think about someone who's just starting to enter the workforce, they may have, you know, limited income, budgeting constraints. When you tell them they need to save in an emergency savings account, three to six months worth of living expenses, while investing for retirement, it can be a challenge. So. A Roth IRA can be compelling from that standpoint in terms of you are saving for retirement, but then you have access to that liquidity if you need it. Yeah. Do you have any sense of, of Roth versus traditional, maybe what, what people choose, what the split is there? Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, if you look at dollars, certainly the assets are invested in traditional deferred IRAs. That's not surprising because they have been around longer and a lot of the rollover IRAs from 401k plans go in the traditional deferred accounts. 
But when we look at contributions, we are seeing an increasing trend toward Roth, and we are seeing an increasing trend with Roth adoption with young investors. Now, granted, the overall percentages are relatively low, but we are seeing in terms of adoption with Roth IRAs among young investors, they constitute roughly 20% of, of, of dollars going into IRAs. So we're seeing a pretty good um, embracement of Roth IRAs among younger investors. What's nice, too, is we're also seeing the trend of contributing to these accounts as well. So that leads us to think that we're seeing good discipline investing behavior among these investors. Sure. And then moving forward, you know, let's, let's pick somebody in their 30s and 40s. Obviously, it depends on one's risk profile, but you'd assume they're more invested in, in stocks versus bonds, right? But do you recommend that people should, as they, as they get closer to retirement or into retirement, should they, you know, allocate heavily towards bonds or money markets or items that are of less risk? Yeah, I mean, asset allocation, you know, is personalized. But when you think about it um, from a general standpoint, one way you can look at it is look at a professionally managed account much like a target date fund. You're seeing a higher equity allocation during the accumulation years. 90% equities is very prudent for someone who is in their young earning potential, and then as they get closer to retirement, it, it, it gets more conservative. But realistically, for individuals who are nearing retirement, an allocation of 60% equities can be quite prudent. When you're thinking about longer life expectancies and having to manage these portfolios throughout retirement, equities still play a role and still play a pretty strong role in the portfolio in order to keep pace with inflation. So we're seeing the trend. And actually, what's interesting is um, some of the patterns that we're seeing with our investors is that younger investors are much more aligned with what you would see with a a target date fund, for instance, roughly 90% in equities. Very reasonable there. What we're seeing that's interesting is that we're not seeing individuals as they near retirement de-risk as they would with a um, a balanced type product or a target date fund. Um, we're seeing individuals, baby boomers, that are holding like two-thirds of their portfolio within equities, and we see that trend continue through later in retirement. So that's interesting. Um, and a couple thoughts I would have there is you know, some retirees today still have pensions, so they're probably between that and Social Security, have a good baseline of income coming in, so they feel more comfortable taking some more risks within their portfolios. Then also, we've had a very generous market since the, the bottom of the market with the global financial crisis, so they may not have rebalanced and sitting on larger equity allocations, knowingly or unknowingly, um, or they may be thinking about legacy planning as well. So not necessarily thinking about retirement for spending purposes, but also thinking about it in terms of a multi-goal uh, retirement where they may be thinking about legacy as well as spending needs. So these are a couple of the reasons why we might see a higher equity allocation among the uh, the retirees. Have you seen much effect take on the required minimum distributions yet for those people that are kind of approaching that 70 70- and a half age group that have invested in, in perhaps the, the traditional IRA. I believe when those or when those kind of got popularized, we kind of are about to start seeing or have already started seeing the very first kind of chunk of people who would have, you know, if they'd started back in their 20s or early 30s, they're now hitting that. And if they've been super savers, maybe they're getting to that point where those required minimum distributions are, are putting them in a tax bracket that was higher than maybe when they were in their 20s or not. Have you seen any of that yet? Yes, we are. It's interesting. The RMD conversations are evolving because we're seeing 
you know, the boomers starting to retire and then some of their, their cohorts, they're starting to take RMDs and they're having to take large RMDs and being hit with a surprisingly high tax burden to go along with that. I often talk about RMDs more in the 60 to 70 year time frame in order to start being proactive about that. Because the reality of it is once you reach age 70, your options are limited. You have to satisfy the distribution. There may be some planning strategies to help minimize or offset that tax liability, but the options are much more uh, limited. So for individuals that are nearing retirement or nearing that age 70, things to think about there are creating tax diversification if they don't already have it. And that could be through doing a series of partial Roth conversions during that. We call it the Roth conversion zone, the sweet spot between 60 and 70. Deferring Social Security and potentially either drawing from those traditional balances or doing Roth conversions is, is one way to help lower. You're lowering your, your traditional IRA balances, which subsequently could lower the RMDs and potentially create some tax diversification for those who are doing conversions. So you really need to think about Roth conversions well in advance of age 70, and we're starting to see that. Um, we're seeing for clients that we work with um, in our um, advisory program, our retail advisory program here at Vanguard, we are seeing more investors who are becoming more keen to thinking about these strategies prior to age 70. And then I write and talk a lot about this topic as well, and I can even see it from the reader comments that I get that individuals are starting to think about this well in advance, which I think is great because you have more tools in your toolbox to think through that. You mentioned that Roth conversion sweet spot between 60 and 70. From from what you've seen in, in research and, and clients that are at Vanguard, is that typically assuming that somebody has kind of quit the workforce and then that basically conversion essentially becomes all of their, their taxable income? Or are these people still working and because of where the tax law is now, they're just saying, hey, why don't I just go ahead and make these conversions now? Well, you know, personal income tax rates are lower than they've historically been, and I'll just deal with paying some of that tax now, even though my tax bill is gonna gonna probably increase just because I'm I'm still taking in W two income or business income or what have you. You know, now you're getting into all the fun stuff now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because if you're working, you still have a decision in terms of how do you direct your deferral, right? If it's a four hundred one k contribution or an IRA. How do I direct that? Do I direct that to a traditional or a Roth? And then also, does it make sense to do that tax diversification now or later? Um, it can be highly personalized. This is one where I would suggest doing your homework, but actually talking to a financial planner to actually do the number crunching for a couple of reasons. One, with conversion, there was a change in the tax law where the recharacterization window has closed. So before the tax reform last year, one had an ability to do the conversion and then recharacterize if they changed their mind or if the tax liability was too high. That window has shut. So once you do a Roth conversion, uh, the liability is there. So it's prudent to make sure you understand the tax impact of that conversion before you do it um, because it could bump you into a higher bracket. So I think what we're seeing, though, is individuals who are leaving the workforce because, um, again, the deferral there is not an option. Uh, they're not contributing to an IRA or a 401k because they don't have the earned income. They may be in a lower bracket relative to later at age 70 once RMDs and Social Security kicks in. So there may be some flexibility there to max out those lower marginal brackets. And that's where the number crunching comes into play. 
The only the one other thing that I always want to talk about when I talk about this during the 60 to 70 year period is for those who are Medicare eligible. Um, Medicare premiums are based on income levels, so they're income thresholds, and there's a two-year look back. Um, so if you're doing you know, conversions, let's say this year, that income then will be used for the 2020 return and the 2021 uh, Medicare Part B premium. So for higher income investors, they may want to think about that because it may not be front and center. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Is is there anything else, maybe either trends or advice that you know that you come across? I know you have your own podcast, and obviously you work with in the strategy and, and with high net worth individuals. Is there anything else, maybe that's often overlooked that these people should be thinking about? Um, for individuals who are nearing retirement and that decision making. Yeah, or maybe you know maybe they're in their forties, but you know high net worth, and and just to make sure they're prepared for retirement. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that we haven't touched upon, which is front and center, is healthcare costs. Um, when, certainly for those who are nearing retirement, healthcare costs is probably one of their biggest concerns. So from a planning standpoint, understanding healthcare costs in retirement is key. Uh, and we actually like to frame that in terms of, you know, a lot of folks talk about it in terms of the big scary number, right? Here's the lump sum of what you need for healthcare costs. We think there's limited value in that because we don't really talk about, well, how much you know, money do you need in terms of housing or clothing or shelter, um, but it, rather than thinking about it in terms of an incremental cost at retirement. Uh, so how much more will healthcare cost for me in retirement than it does today? Because for many of us who um, work for employers, there's a certain level of subsidy that many employers may cover. So it's not uh, and you know, a, a nothing to all. It's more of an incremental change. So, healthcare costs, how they fit in from a planning standpoint, is paramount. For those who are, you know, kind of mid-career, one thing we haven't talked about in terms of healthcare costs is health savings accounts and how they play in. So, when we think about investors today, there's more investment choice with vehicles than there were 20 years ago. Roth health savings accounts, 529s, so different types of um, tax-advantaged accounts come into play. Health savings accounts are probably one of the best things out there. Um, kind of call them sometimes a Roth on steroids because it's the only triple tax-free investment out there. Contributions are tax-deductible, the growth is tax-deferred, and then qualified withdrawals are tax-free. So for those individuals that have a high-deductible health plan and have the option with a health savings account, that is really, when we think about off-label retirement savings accounts, that is one of them, absolutely. And it, it's interesting to reframe that conversation in terms of turning a health savings account potentially into a retirement savings vehicle. And that's definitely a conversation for someone who probably is either a higher income or a higher net worth individual. Yeah, I agree, agree with you on the triple tax savings. And I, I think an HSA sometimes is is overlooked, right? And, and that's something that people can get started on early and, and be a huge asset in retirement and, and wealth growth. Uh, Maria, just, you know, in today's market, right, people with the political market and, and the economy and you got the trade war with China and North Korea and all these different things going on. And, and some people think, right, we're going we're to see a big drop. What are, do you see any trends in what investors are doing are people holding cash or are you know what's the average amount of cash people hold or are there any trends that you're seeing just in today's market from investors yeah i mean we are you know we've had some volatility late last year and then earlier this year 
Um, so I think that did make some investors a little bit skittish because, again, we haven't seen that volatility for quite a number of years. We came a little bit insulated, I think, from it. So market volatility, what we've expect, experienced is not uh, to be expected. The question is, is what will we see going forward? And that's where, you know, balanced portfolios really do play an important role, right? We talk about asset allocation, so that's paramount. We have seen some investors that might be a little bit more cautious in terms of holding a little bit more cash. When we think about longer-term trends, we do see, especially with millennials, we do see them well-allocated, but we still see a cohort that holds cash, which is interesting because you would expect some of that because they would, you know, if they're using their portfolio for spending purposes or liquidity, then you cash is the place for that. What would be concerning, though, is if we see investors, young investors who are scared of the market, stay out of cash altogether if they're staying on the sidelines, particularly if they're saving for retirement. So that's the one thing that we would see with young millennials is that there is a small cohort that seems to have a a, a substantial amount of cash. The question is, is why? Are they saving for goals outside of retirement? If that's the case, then that's completely prudent. But there's an opportunity cost to being invested out of the market. So, So those are a couple of the trends that we're seeing in terms of where cash plays in. What we may be seeing with some retirees is maybe holding a little bit more in cash uh, for a spending account, and that's completely reasonable as well. Yeah, I, I think it's just something to think about, you know, in, 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 in a situation where maybe you have some cash and you've maxed out your Roth accounts and you've maxed out your HSA and maybe you have a 529 or some of these other accounts and, and you're sitting on cash and, and one doesn't know whether to say, hey, you know, let me invest this in a traditional retirement account or Maybe I'll save this for real estate, right, or something outside the market or small business. And and so I think that's one thing that at least on our podcast we see from numerous investors is saying, hey, how much cash should I hold and then when should I deploy that cash? Right. Yeah. You know, and the other thing probably to think about, too, is that with interest rates rising a bit, the yields on money markets have been more attractive as well. That's another thing to think about as well. Yeah, let me, I'm not sure you'll know or, or even want to say, but one of the big thing that's kind of going off right is this high interest uh, savings account, right? So Goldman and Ally, and is that something that Vanguard's looking into at all? Well, from a, you know, from a cash standpoint, money market funds play a role. We've got a couple different mutual funds that are well diversified on the taxable side, state municipal funds as well as broad municipal funds as well that offer a variety of choice for investors based upon their goals, but. Well, again, when we think about cash, we think about it in terms of principal preservation, and these products are well-suited for those goals. So we're seeing consistency there, which is a good thing. Sure. So just just switching gears a little bit here, have ETFs gained more traction recently, or, or has index funds primarily been the main investment tool? When we think about ETFs, I mean, certainly among financial advisors, and we think about product choice, high adoption of ETF uh, usage with advisors, um, low-cost products, well-diversified products. You know, for individual investors, a lot of it can be a choice in terms of what ETFs offer versus mutual funds. So at Vanguard, we have ETF share class and mutual fund share class of the same product. So the question then would be more of a feature set in terms of what does the ETF offer versus the mutual funds, and then from a cost standpoint. Those are probably the two decision points that we would talk through for individual investors as they think about one product versus the other. Sure. And, and just big picture here before we wrap up, I know we talked about asset allocation, but 
when you were a financial planner or, or even now, you know, let's just take maybe somebody in their 40s. What would you say their their allocation should be, you know, stocks and bonds and maybe international versus domestic? Sure. For someone in that cohort, if they're saving for retirement, certainly they should have a large asset allocation toward equity. Uh, anywhere 80, 90 percent is, is very prudent, well diversified globally. There, you know, I would say roughly, you know, 60 percent not 60 percent U.S. to 40 percent non-U.S. is a pretty good balance. And when you look at the global market cap on equities, for instance, uh, it's split roughly 50 percent U.S., 50 percent non-U.S. So for someone who's comfortable with that amount, the market cap allocation certainly is prudent. Um, when it comes to international, I would say, you know, even a small amount is better than none. You know, what we've seen in terms of our research is you get the majority of the diversification benefit from 0 to 20% non-U.S., uh, and then anywhere from 20 to market cap 50%, depending upon how an investor is comfortable with that. Awesome. But certainly we are a global economy, so, you know, global stocks do play a role, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have the sense, Maria, of your most popular either actively managed mutual funds or index funds? Obviously, your Vanguard total stock market, VTSAX, is, is probably the highest. But from there, do you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. You nailed it. It's the total market funds. <laughs> yeah. So what are you excited about? What's Vanguard doing? What are you kind of working on? What should investors be aware of with, with what's going on in the Vanguard world? Well, you know, especially in my world, uh, a lot of the topics that we are talking about is putting together, you know, really it's tax diversification. How do we build um, tax efficiency throughout the investing spectrum? So for younger investors, it would be how do I invest my next marginal dollar across the household, whether it is an HSA, a 401k, paying down debt, uh, and what type of debt, right? So that interplay there, we're working on some research there in terms of how to guide investors towards that decision-making. And then for investors who are, um, you know, nearing or in retirement, it's that, again, it's tax diversification. How do we think about the different strategies? What potential value can they add uh, in the planning, decision-making? And then certainly how can advisors use that then? Or individuals, DIY-type individuals, take those strategies and then implement them into their own personal plan. So the work that I do is, um, you know, I can talk about the strategies and how how they can add value and the things to think about, but then it's actually the investors that are doing it themselves or working with advisors that take those principles and then put them into a specific action plan. Sure. Uh, tell us a little bit, just in closing here, about your podcast and what you talk about and, and, and what's discussed there. Yeah, so I, uh, along with my colleague, Joel Dixon, um, I'm part of a podcast, The Planner and the Geek. Uh, I am the planner. He is the geek. Uh, so I'd like to say that we balance each other out, um, but it is a per- it's a personal finance podcast, and we cover a variety of topics from investing to retirement. Um, we cover recently we just covered um, topics like social security, healthcare costs. Um, we take listener questions uh, with an open Q and A. Sometimes we'll have special guests as well. So it's a fun channel for us to talk about financial planning, holistic financial planning topics in a fun, engaging, informative way. So it's kind of fun for us. So um, hopefully our listeners agree with that. We've been around, I think, for about a year and a half now with our podcast and still going strong. Awesome. Awesome. Good for you. Well, Maria, thanks again for taking time out of your day. We appreciate it. And for our listeners, that's Maria Bruno, the head of U.S. Wealth Planning at Vanguard. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Thanks, Maria. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.